Welcome to the latest episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast series, hosted and developed by the Samuel Dewitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. Today, Leah Hollis, one of our visiting scholars, will be interviewing Laura Lee Keishley from Wayne State University. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am thrilled to be here today with everybody, with a friend and colleague, Laura Lee Keishley from Wayne State University. And we're here to have a conversation about workplace bullying. I particularly am thrilled to speak with Laura Lee, given her breadth of experience in researching in the field. And a lot of my work builds upon her. So welcome to the podcast, Laura Lee. Thanks, Leah. I'm happy to be here. Thrilling. I I do. I am very honored to have you on with the podcast. So if I may kick off, as you have been studying workplace bullying for, I think it's about two decades now. Did I get that correct? Over a quarter of a century. Over a quarter of a century. What changes have you witnessed that American organizations have taken to prevent workplace bullying? I would say the biggest thing I've seen over time is that they're paying attention. Um, They're actually, it's becoming part of the conversation and being elevated from the shadows, if you will. Mm -hmm. HR has become very interested, both sharing their experiences as people who receive or become aware of these kinds of situations, but also their own experiences being bullied by representing the institution. I also think another thing that's facilitated it coming out of the shadows Um, has been, I would say, a generational shift as well. So we have a lot lot of younger people coming into organizations, and they have different expectations for what work should be and what workplaces should be. And they have a very strong focus on the quality of working life. I think another influence for me has been the attention to diversity and inclusion, um, and also to sexual harassment, which is really heightened Uh, attention to the forms of hostility and mistreatment that exist. And in bringing bullying into it, uh, we're recognizing that this is not something that is just particular to certain groups, although they are often more vulnerable than others, but that it is fundamentally problematic. And I think another thing is, as the research gathers, we're able to tie it to outcomes that organizations care about, So they can see that when bullying is occurring and it continues without being addressed, the employees suffer and the organization will suffer. So we can build a business case for them, which is what Joel Newman and I did with the VA back in the late 1990s and 2000s, um, building a business case for the harm that's created by workplace aggression and bullying. It's interesting, even when I speak with colleagues or do presentations much like you do on this topic, it tends to be more, organizations tend to perk up more when you talk about, not you specifically, but when we as researchers talk about the cost per head, the cost per week, the cost of disengagement, and then it becomes a bigger issue. Yep. I'm curious, what do you think it would take, a follow-up question here, what do you think it would take for organizations or states, or even the federal government to have legislation much like we see in Canada or Scandinavian countries or France, or why do you think the United States is behind (laughs) in passing legislation? Oh, this is just me 
speculating in my own opinion. And, and for all the listeners out there, I'm Canadian. I live in the States now for the last 24 years, but I, I, I am a Canadian citizen. And so I'm coming in with that perspective. So Leah, that's why I want you to also bring in yours perspective as sure. somebody who's born and raised here. Sometimes I think it has a lot to do with um, the notion of individualism and the idea about a meritocracy. And as long as people work hard and do the things they need to do, that they will be successful. So that there isn't often a discussion about uh, pattern behavior or ways that people can be kept down or it can be utilized in different kinds of ways. So I sometimes think that that narrative is has clouded people's vision. Um, I also think there's a narrative that somehow says that has translated things like competition and ambition into aggressive behavior. So my colleague Joel Newman used to like to say the dog eat dog kind of philosophy that you sometimes see in organizations that you do whatever you need to do to get ahead. Um, and so these behaviors, bullying behaviors get framed as, but that's part of doing business. That's part of what we do. This is how you do things. Now, as a Canadian, one of the things that I'm sensitive about with respect to particularly Anglo culture in Canada, Canada itself is much, it has a stronger collective focus. And so for me, that associates things like not only do I need to care for me, but I need to care for others, mm -hmm. which suggests that I need to be attentive to how I deal with others and look at how I can work about managing that. So that's some of what I've tried to figure out, but I'd be curious what you've been thinking about that. I do agree with that competitive nature that we see probably more in the States. Mm. And interesting for us, as an African-American couple, we go to Canada to hang out because <laughs> he is treated so much better in Canada. So my partner is a six, five muscular guy. He used to be a gym rat and he's just the nicest person. But here mm. in the size and the color that he is, people run from him. But when we go to Canada, mm. I get to see how Canadians treat him more like a human being than here. Mm. Um, so yeah. the I don't think the xenophobia is as thick in Canada as it is in the United States, given our history. Mm -hmm. I also know that, you know, the competition thing, and I'm very competitive. I mean, I, I grew up playing sports. However, my first coach, oh, just a, a dear of a person, Linda Renzi, who's since passed on, has mm -hmm. talked about we were always lady rams. We were always you know, like the scholar and the gentleman kind of thing. So we may come in and like blow you out 15 to three in a match, but we're going to be pleasant and ladylike about it and be collegial while you're competing. I can see in other aspects of our society that competing is not just the aggression that comes with a polite competition, but this smash mouth, clean your clock. These are all the terms that I saw growing up watching, you know, NFL football, that it was about just smearing somebody into the ground. And in many ways, our athletes are paying for it, as we know about CTE and those other things. Right. But I do see, um, even with my peers at the university level, 
we're mm-hmm. always talking about how competitive it is somewhere else. So, you know, Morgan State's right now a research two, and all we talk about is competing to be a research one, and we're competing to get these grants, and we're competing to get this. And mm-hmm. but somewhere in there, and not just Morgan State, this is at all places, mm-hmm. we forget that innovation comes with collaboration and creativity mm-hmm. and trust. Mm-hmm. And so somehow, I think that a number of places miss uh, the connection between creative and collaborative innovation right. and civility, and then how that actually can enhance your competition mm-hmm. and not just the dog eat dog part right. that we've mentioned earlier. Yeah, I have a background in conflict studies and conflict resolution. And, you know, the field has a focus more on constructive engagement. And that doesn't mean mm-hmm. always being polite and nice, but it does mean recognizing and caring about the other party because the reason we're often in these conflicts together or in a negotiation together is because I can't get what I need without your help. And so I need to care about you. I need to care about what matters to you, what your interests are. I need to be able to articulate my own. So for me, the perspective I bring is that individuals never exist on their own. They always exist in relationship to other people. And we need each other to do that. Now, can conflict be really vibrant and passionate and all that? Absolutely. But there are still rules to it in the field that I practice in, nonviolence, for example, that says, like you said, your lady rams, you had rules. You had rules about engagement. It wasn't that you couldn't engage and it couldn't be a Mm -hmm. vibrant, challenging engagement, but it was one that recognized the integrity of others. You know, and I think that's probably the ugliest thing about workplace bullying is it's attacking the integrity of others, the undermining, the, I think undermining is the word I would use, the diminution, (laughs) diminishing people. It is really antithetical to Mm -hmm. the integrity of the other individual. And I would say more broadly, it's antithetical to the ind- individuals and the groups who are doing this stuff. Because I think, I think morally and psychically, they have to do an awful lot of work to keep themselves convinced that what they are doing is justified and appropriate. And I think we have lots of narratives in states that people can borrow to justify what their behaviors are. Like, this is how we get ahead. And, you know, you can't have people challenging these rules and you can't have people challenging rules of civility, for example, assuming everybody has the same idea about what that is. I, I, I can appreciate uh, what you're saying about the rules of engagement, if you will, and the collaborative mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the care that we need to take for each other. And wow, yeah. how so much of what's happened in 2020 be uh, alleviated at some sort if we took more care for each other. Mm. And it makes me wonder, moving on to the next question, would this particular part of our discussion Mm -hmm. dovetail into why organizations are reluctant to adopt 
policies. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I see the resistance to policies come from faculty who believe it's treading on their individualism or treading on their ability to do or say what they want or align it with, they align incivility with academic freedom. And I'm curious if you could speak to that a little bit, how the organizational posture may be somewhat related to care or no care or lacking care. Yeah, actually, I, I mean, I've been studying bullying in universities for the last 10 years or so. And I'm fascinated by universities. First of all, they're my organization, right? Because <laughs> I've been an academic for over 30 years. Uh, it's been my workplace. And I'm fascinated by it because there's there are different groups of university members. So faculty are a particular type of worker. Staff, which is actually a very heterogeneous group, is made up of a number of different kinds of workers. And then administration has an, another set of there's another set of workers and set of expectations. So I've liked studying the um, university because of that diversity, the differences of the employee groups, and I think faculty as a group are a particularly interesting mm-hmm. one because they would be what I would characterize as a self-regulating profession. And academic freedom is premised on that idea that we're allowed to to operate with a fair amount of autonomy. We're not, we are not in fact autonomous. We rely on each other, we rely on the institution, but we're able to pursue our ideas and our perspectives and our projects, even if they might be unpopular and controversial. And part of the deal of being a self-regulating profession is if you don't want somebody else regulating you, then you better regulate yourselves. So I think faculty raise really legitimate concerns about some policies, you know, how they might be overly broad or how do they interface with academic freedom. So I think there's a really rich opportunity here to do that. Even with that, though, I have seen over the years, Leah, university upon university develop policies on bullying. So they get it. They know they're trying to find ways to code that or embody it. And it's okay that faculty are challenging about it, are grappling with it. And I can tell you from my own experience here at Wayne State, I mean, I've been with Wayne State for over 24 years now, and we are now working on an anti-bullying policy. And what was, what's been so, we've just started that process, but what's been so um, cool for me is how the motivation for it came from our academic senate, which is composed of our faculty and academic staff. It was motivated by things we detected in our campus climate survey. So it was coming from faculty, and it was coming from staff, and it was coming from administrators. And so that opportunity for us all to start talking together about it, having conversations about it, pushing back and forth against each other, I think is I think is really exciting. So I actually think universities do get are working on it. I think the best conversations happen when you have mm-hmm. all of your folks involved in it, you know, all the different perspectives involved in it, talking about it. And I often think Joel Newman, my colleague who I wrote with for over 20 years on bullying and aggression, one of the things Joel used to say is that 
What's more powerful than the outcome, i.e. a policy, is the process by which we got there. And it's in that process that we model, engage, show challenge with each other, but challenge that's done rather like, hearkening back to what you said, Leah, about Lady Rams, having those challenges and those grapplings go on in a way that had people feeling heard, their boundaries respected, and ideas fleshed out and developed, different scenarios considered in terms of how we set up the language for it. So I'm actually very optimistic about it, but what I've had to embrace, now this is might be funny coming from a conflict person, but conflict is something that I, I'm fascinated about. It also scares me. So maybe that's one of the reasons I work in it because I don't want to be scared of it. And I've learned by being in academia to be comfortable with dissension, with challenge, with debate, with critique. But I've also, I also know how those norms can be taken and subverted in a way to have somebody or a group of somebody's justify their behavior as nothing more than passionate critique or as part of the academic enterprise. Or when we go and respond to it, to hear back, but you can't say that to me because I have, uh, because you'd violate my academic freedom. And one of the responses I have is to get into conversations about what do we mean by academic freedom? And quite honestly, it's not an easily captured concept. And I think that conversation is a really critical one to have, because then I think people start to see that it can be subverted by some folks. Uh, There are other times when we have done things which do compromise academic freedom. So, but I think we can develop policies. I think some universities have been successful at it, but it's very dynamic. So it'll never be a checkbox saying it's going to be here. There's always going to be a need to discern what the experience is like. So one of the things I've loved working with us from a, in an academic environment has been the recognition that with different kinds of employee groups, you often have variability in conduct norms and behavioral norms. And so as we approach that, we need to recognize that each of these sort of sub-communities in a way have certain sets of expectations for behaviors. And so when we're assessing someone's behavior as to whether it meets whatever standard we're going to call workplace bullying, when we know we've met it, um, you need to have members of that community involved in that assessment because they know their, their norms, they know, and they can discern whether that's appropriate or not. And in a university, because you have these such disparate groups, sometimes the conflict and sometimes mm-hmm. the difficulty is because norms have conflicted and we're evaluating each other on the basis of the norms of our particular group. So policies mm-hmm. provide the opportunity, and then I'll be quiet. <laughs> policies provide the opportunity to make the conversation visible, to involve a number of the, of the people and the community members in defining what we mean by, for example, collegiality, what we mean by collaboration, what we mean by civility. Uh, And it's in those conversations we get to try out things with each other and hopefully come to some clarity, a shared clarity about that. Sure. Wow. I appreciate your reflection on that. (laughs) Now, if I may switch gears a little bit, And even before we started recording, we talked about 
how we manage or work with folks who are being targeted or traumatized. And so even though the person who's the target or the victim or what have you of workplace bullying, it's not their fault. Mm. Are there things that you would recommend to a target to avoid when they all of a sudden they realize they're being bullied? Mm. And so now, even though it's not the target's fault, but things that that person should avoid or behaviors or strategies they should consider to alleviate the trauma of being bullied? Right. So what they should avoid. I think one of the big things is to avoid the temptation to retaliate, to bully back, mm-hmm. in essence. Because one of the things we know from the research literature is the more that bullying goes on, the more it spirals outward and draws in yeah. other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get people choosing sides and things like that. So it's more likely to escalate. There's evidence to suggest that confronting someone who does this directly, once bullying has been established, and I'll talk about why I emphasize that in a moment, often runs the risk of escalating it. Um, And I say once bullying is established because, you know, the sense of what bullying is, is that it's progressive, it's escalatory. And in the early stages, this is what's very difficult for people is they don't know if what's going on is just, you know, a bad day, an occasional aggressive thing, or whether we're actually starting to see a pattern take hold. And it's when the pattern take hold that things get really difficult then to take over because somebody has systematically been pulled into it and it makes it harder. So in the early phases, what Charlotte Rayner likes to call the not yet bullied, then engaging with the person and talking with them about the behaviors you see, the impact on you and what you want to be different makes sense. Once bullying is established, it's often very difficult for someone who's been targeted to be able to continue to hold their ground because they've often been undermined and that's had impacts on how they view themselves, how they see themselves. They can be quite vulnerable. So taking on the bully on your own, pushing back super hard, like bullying back, doing your own uh, behind the scenes stuff, organizing a coalition. I'm a fan of organizing a coalition of people to work on these issues. The coalition can, can quite easily flip over to a mob. And then I'm like, okay, now we're going to get into even more of a spiral. Uh-huh. I would say, lots of us say, as this stuff is happening, start writing about it. Because the beginning is often so subtle, you're never quite sure what's happening until you're quite far down the path. And then you've connected the dots and you go, wow, this has been going on for some time. And I've been injured in the process of doing it. Uh, So documenting can help you start to see something start to evolve, which then creates the opportunity for an earlier action. The other thing is if you need to, you now have documentation that you can take to others uh, to show them the sort of, not just the individual behaviors, because it doesn't show up so much in the individual behaviors, but in the patterning over time and the progression to it. So talking with others about your experience letting them know that you're feeling uncomfortable or you're getting you're getting those vibes where you're like, this doesn't seem like the usual kind of conflictual stuff or a little bit of rubbing up against each other, which we do in environments, or it's not just conflict, it's something else. So not going solo. Don't go solo on this. 
the temptation often is to also draw away and protect yourself, which I think you always should. But what I mean is by drawing away from everybody, because then you get really isolated and there's, and all you've got is what you're thinking about and it can get into a vicious cycle. So those are, I think telling your story to somebody is really important. And Leah, that taps, that ties back to our conversation before we started recording uh, where each of us shared people reaching out to us and telling us what had happened to them and how much they appreciated us listening and just saying that we felt, you know, what we were hearing was heartbreaking and we felt sad and concerned for them. And that that was actually one of the most powerful things it turns out that we could have ever done Mm -hmm. um, is to be there and to listen. So for people are being, targeted don't don't go solo don't draw away tell people your story sure one of the things i've noticed in my research as i dovetail into race and gender issues is culturally um, not just the african-american community but a number of communities Mm. women are already facing a silencing Mm -hmm. or an isolation but if you are able to get out there and tell a colleague at work, a trusted colleague, but also not to hide it from your family and to the knock on the doors of friends at other universities or organizations and to build those kinds of communities. And so often that outreach is something that has been reserved for the men. Mm-hmm. However, when you do it, whether you're man or woman or or transition and what have you, reach out, you get those people who will listen on the other end and will say, by the way, Mm -hmm. you can do X, Y, and Z. By the way, (laughs) this avenue. So even in the emoting part with a trusted circle, despite the fact that for so many of us, we've been told just be quiet, just go be quiet. Mm -hmm. You instead find not just emotional support, but many times find solutions, find escape hatches, find mm-hmm. solidarity, and not the mobbing. I appreciate how a cult could turn to a mob. Yes. But you can find people who validate that, no, you're not out of your mind <laughs> that this is happening to you. Because so often you're wondering, it's like, is, is this me? Is it, is it my fault, that reflexive shame that folks feel when they're mm-hmm. targeted? So I really want to emphasize for anybody listening is to not isolate yourself or if you have a colleague who's going through that, to pull them out and get them to reach out and find those support systems, even if they're not in those traditional places um, applying to where you report. In preparation for this, uh, Mm -hmm. we also talked about uh, your research looking at conflict resolution and negotiation. Are there skills from that background of yours that you would offer to targets who are trying to find relief from workplace bullying? Yeah, particularly, you know, in the early on stages, like I said before, there's a term we like to use where we talk about people's interests versus the positions they come with. So a position is a solution to something. An interest is what is the need, what is important to them. And 
And I think I made, I, I did reference a little earlier when we were just chatting about the idea about learning about the other person's needs. What are their interests? What's important to them? Also important for me to figure out what's important to me and what my needs are and looking to see where there might be places of connection there. Because that, if we can form that kind of place of connection, we now start a basis about being able to have a conversation. So, you know, we talk about the skills of listening and then being able to be assertive as opposed to passive or aggressive or passive aggressive. So those, some of those skills I think are really important. Another thing that I've often found helpful, it comes out of the Fisher and Yuri getting to yes work where one of their guidelines or statements is you separate the people from the problem. So it's really easy and understandable for in having these experiences for looking at the person who is doing this as fundamentally flawed, psychopathic, evil, whatever that is that comes to it. But I think the data suggests that people who do this stuff aren't necessarily psychopathic. There aren't enough psychopaths in the the country to account for all the bullying that we see. Um, So we know that. And many times it's folks who have learned how to do this, maybe in their own organization. They've watched other people do it. They figured that's what they do. So tying back to what we talked about earlier, Leah, about competitive, this is how it goes here. This is how it works here. And focusing on the specific behaviors. You know, the business case that we talked about making to organizations, you're tying the behaviors that happen in this workplace with the outcomes the organization cares about, right? So you're not necessarily saying you got five bullies here and they're hurting you this way. You're saying these kinds of behaviors disrupt these processes, which lead to the outcomes that you want, right? Because if people are being exposed to this or treated in this way, they're being undermined. Uh, they can be become distracted. It could affect their performance, you know, and that all can feed through. And then others who see it happening are also affected. So it can spread out like that. So, you know, focusing on what specifically is problematic. And I think another thing I would say coming out of the negotiation literature is when I when you sent me this question, it really got me thinking and I appreciate it, is knowing what you want to come out of this. What is it that you want to walk away with? If this was a successful engagement from your point of view as a person on the receiving end, what would it look like? And what is it that you will not take? Mm -hmm. So there's a concept in the negotiation literature called the best alternative to a negotiated agreement or BATNA. And so if you're going to go into conversations, discussions, engagement with uh, the persons or persons who are doing this, you also need to know at what point you're going to walk away to your best alternative to that conversation. You need to be clear about what is going to be the line. Because if you don't know that going in, you may continue in that. It takes you past the point that it's actually good for you to be there or it's useful for you to be there. So I've always found that helpful. And the other thing I would say is, um, you know, we talk about when you go into conflict, preparation is important. So not only getting clear about your needs, what you know about the other person's needs, but also grounding yourself, centering yourself, I think is really an important step in that process too. So 
those are some of the things that I see coming out of the conflict literature. One thing I do want to say, and I know that I will have colleagues who will disagree on with me on this, and I've written about it, is the use of mediation in um, working with parties who bully and those who have bullied. I have reservations about because if bullying is particularly established and advanced, the person who's been on the receiving end will be particularly challenged in being able to be fully present with the uh, the actor, even if a mediator is there. And I get concerned that it actually could potentially victimize the target further. So I'm a fan of mediation, but it has to happen earlier rather than once it's been established. So some of the conflict stuff, yeah, I think it's useful. I think it's helpful. I also think that there are times when you have to know when you're going to have to walk away and you're going to have to get other people involved or you're going to have to use other kinds of strategies. Well, those are all good to know. And it's interesting. I'm reflecting on your comment about the target being fully present at a mediation if it's so far down the mm-hmm. road. And I guess what you're really saying is also after so much trauma has happened, how can you be present in an environment where the bully is is there as well because you're still always on guard with everything you've gone through yeah with all of these things that we've discussed so there's always that powerful figure meaning the administrator or the boss or in university settings it's the dean the provost the avp or Hmm. for some of those upper echelon leaders whether it's in higher education or other organizations what advice or comments would you give to them about how to manage workplace bullying, how to deal mm-hmm. with it before it does that spiraling that you talked about and before the targets become so traumatized that mediation almost flies out right. the window. Or any kind of intervention. Often what we're doing at that point with severe bullying is you're doing damage control. And I mean, the long-term effects of being exposed is pretty dramatic. So I agree with you about what I would recommend to administrators. First thing I I think it's really important is they take it seriously. Um, I think you tapped on this when you started talking about your experiences with universities. I've heard phrases like, well, that's just the way faculty are. Or that's, you know, he he or she has always been that way. So there's an immediate sort of shutdown of the conversation. And I think for administrators, they need to understand that bullying is very different and is distinctive from the culture of debate and critique that characterizes academe. So I think they need to take it seriously. When they hear a complaint, I think they need to stop and I think they need to listen. I think the other thing that's really important is data. Get some data about what the profile of this stuff looks like in your organization. In 2008, Joel Newman and I were offered the opportunity by a university, and we can say who it is because they're very open about it, the University of Minnesota Mankato, who had a sense that there were issues going on for them. And they had a staff member who was very familiar with the workplace bullying literature and said, I I think this might be it. And there's a couple of people that I think might be able to help us. So we went in, designed a survey and gathered data and then shared that information back, not just with the administrators, but with everybody in the organization. And we were sharing it back and saying, what do you see here? 
Is this what you want? Is this what it looks like? So you have to get an idea about what it looks like in your place. You know, how, and not suppositions about what people think it should look like, but what it does look like. Mm-hmm. And I think I also say to them sometimes is be prepared to examine your own behaviors. Be prepared, you know, and you and I think I touched on this, Leah, before we started recording mm. about doing this work. We are often very reflective about our own behaviors. And so we'll ask ourselves mm-hmm. periodically in an interaction, how is that coming? How am I coming across? You know, how does this situation leave me feeling? So that I think administrators need to be prepared to look at their own behaviors and the strategies that they have used. Hearing narratives like, and I've, I've taken this on when I hear it around here, when someone says, well, that's the way that person is, or faculty are like that. I'll say, what are faculty like? And I'm not being sarcastic. I'm saying, what are faculty like? Tell me what you think faculty are like. And I find when you can get people back from that superficial level of a label and then get them talking about what does that mean, you now we really have an opportunity for that kind of engagement. So those are those are the things that I would say to them and I have said to them. <laughs> makes perfect good sense. Is this the environment that is going to take you to whatever goals are on your strategic plan and how much the organization really does take the persona of the the leader or those in charge? Um, Mm -hmm. Several years ago at another university I worked at, I had a staff member who always just say, you know, the fish always stinks from the head. And that's a cliche or colloquial way to look at it. But so often, even when I've done research and have done qualitative intake with leaders, Mm -hmm. I've had someone say, what is workplace bullying? But when I hear Mm -hmm. what their daily walk is like, they have relationships with staff, regardless of whether it's the janitor, the parking attendant, all the way to the chief of staff. And they're open and available and listening Mm -hmm. before problems arise. So... Mm -hmm. It doesn't burn out of control. It's somebody can say, no, this is happening. And, and that leader, those leaders tend to just naturally take it on. Oh, darn. <laughs> a few things I'd like to consider. I know we're, mm-hmm. we're coming close to time, but I'd really like to see in. Yeah, so when we talk about this in universities, I mean, so often we see, you know, junior faculty and entry-level people are so vulnerable. But then you have tenured people and senior level people mm-hmm. who have more power. And we know workplace bullying is built around these power differentials. So for our listeners uh, for this podcast, is there advice that you would offer differently depending on the power position you may reside in in your organization that say a junior faculty member versus a senior faculty member? And you're talking about them being a target. Yeah. Okay. When I think about junior faculty, I one of the things I want them to be clear about, and I'd also say this to senior faculty, is bullying is never acceptable. It's never an acceptable way to behave. And regardless of who is doing it, nobody has the privilege, although we know that people act like they do, um, nobody has the privilege to do that. So, for example, we do see in organizations and in universities, sometimes the stars 
the ones who bring in the big grants and publications are often allowed more idiosyncrasy credits for their behavior because of what they offer to the organization. So the university may be less willing to take them on than they might someone who is not produces those things that that organization cares about. So I want junior faculty to understand that that's not acceptable and they don't need to put up with it. I also think it's important that they know what their risk is. So figuring out just how vulnerable they are. We automatically assume that junior faculty are quite vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a department where you have, where the faculty tend to be quite cohesive, connected, constructive, um, the actions of one particular faculty member engaging in these kinds of behavior, there's an opportunity there to leverage the other ones, to get them to step in on that. Um, and we've seen that work fairly successfully. Talking to trusted others, like you had talked about, Leah, before, about you know reaching out to colleagues at other places, talking to them about it. I know our university... When junior faculty come in, we have a departmental mentor, at least one. Um, the chair, of course, will often mentor everybody, and they're often mentors from outside. So these can be people that you could go to and talk to about it and talk about what's happening. And whenever possible, managing your exposure to those folks who are doing this. So this is a tough one to walk because you need to be present. Although in the pandemic, we need to talk about presence in a different way, but uh, we need to be present for, you know, committee meetings and faculty meetings, that type of thing. But managing kind of your exposure, sitting with particular people who you know are supportive and reducing the kind of contact that you have. So those are some of the ideas that I have for junior faculty. Oh, actually, Trust your gut. If you think something doesn't feel right, explore why that might be, either in conversation with others or upon your own reflections. And I think the other thing I would suggest is understand your own sources of power. So organizationally, in a university, you may be in a less powerful position, but there are other sources of power people have. You know, you think of French and Raven's five bases of social power, right? Um, one of those really powerful ones is referent power, uh, which is the power the, or the influence people allow us to have on them because they feel connected and they like us. So often what I'll recommend for anybody coming into any new workplace is to prioritize getting to know people at the workplace, building some basic connection there so that people have a sense of who you are before something like this happens, because then when you share that with them about what's happening, they have a deep, have a deeper sense of you and they're more likely to look at what's going on and saying, you know what, that doesn't sound right. That isn't right. But thinking about the kinds of forces of power that you have. Now with senior faculty, first of all, one of the things I'd say to them is senior faculty can be bullied. And there is some data to say that actually tenured faculty are at risk of being bullied. Often that's associated with some rank differences, but that you can be bullied. You can be tenured and senior, but there are ways for people to get at you. Don't retaliate for senior faculty to be very cautious about that, but also recognize the kind of influence you have 
So, I mean, I'm a full professor and I'm tenured. I, I had, think I have an understanding about what that means in my university. And what I understand it means in the universities that other people will often see it as because I'm a full professor and I'm tenured, they're more likely to listen to me. They're more likely to mm-hmm. ask my input on things. Uh, in fact, we have more expectation that if you're a full professor, you should actually be doing more service and, and participate more. So that means that you have networks and you have connections. So there are people you can talk to. There are ways you could leverage some of those connections. So if somebody's engaging this behavior towards you, you could be checking in with some of them to say, what can you tell me about that? And is there a way you can help me with that? I would also say that for junior faculty too. Go to your senior colleagues, the ones that you your gut tells you get it or understand. Talk to them about it and ask for their help. Those are some of the ideas that I have. Sure. Okay. And I'm going to ask you the same question. <laughs> wrap up, and this will be this will have, probably have to be the last question. I've just okay. enjoyed listening to you. What advice would you give to the bystander or the witness? Sometimes we make those advocates that witnesses of bystanders should jump in there. And then other times, sometimes when you jump Mm -hmm. in there, you become the target yourself. What kinds of trauma or risk or power or reconciliation can bystanders and witnesses be subjected to or engage in when they see this bad behavior? Right. The very first thing when I'm talking with people about this, and I've done I've designed and done some training with faculty and staff about being effective bystanders. And people hate the word bystander, but it means a witness, somebody who's present um, in some form or fashion when that happens. And one of the things I point out to them is whether they do something or don't do something, it'll have an impact. So the bottom line is they're influencing all the time. The question is, how is it that they they need to think about that consciously, intentionally, and deliberately. I'm going to be influencing, even if I don't do anything, because sometimes silence is taken as consent, right? Mm-hmm. I'm still influencing. So you you can't run away from your responsibility. That's what I say to people. You can't run away. You have a responsibility to do something. Now, I'm not just going to leave people like that because they're like, well, what the heck? Uh, what we know from research, actually, is that people will often tell us they didn't know what to do as a bystander. But as we have conversations with them, we discover they do a lot of different things. So people do have these actions and skills that they use. They just don't recognize that those are useful. And often they don't because they think, well, the bullying didn't completely stop and everything isn't resolved. And, you know, one of the things I talk to them about is, well, some of the actions we take, like distracting the person who's engaging in these behaviors so you can give a break to the target and get them out of there. That's important. Getting somebody out of a situation gives space and time to be able to start thinking about other things or going to the person. If you feel you can't do something in that moment, going to the target afterwards and saying, I saw what happened. And the power of that for targets is stunning. Because like you said, Leah, sometimes the targets and the effect of bullying is to have a person question their own, the validity of their, of what they're experiencing and having somebody else say to them, I saw that this is what I saw. 
And when you do that, I think another thing you could also say to the person is, I would like to do something. I often ask permission of people if I am, if I'm not able to intervene at the time, I ask permission and say, I would like to do something and this is what I'd like to do, but I want your permission because sometimes people don't want you to do something, at least right now, but they know that you're there with them. So you can do things during that time, after that time, you can do it overtly. You can be public in it. Like I can look at you and say, Leah, you're out of line. Stand back, <laughs> stand down, right? Or I could talk to you afterwards, or I could catch your eye and give you the look where I look over top of my glasses and I'm going, seriously, Leah? You know, I don't even say it verbally. Never underestimate the power of a good nonverbal to break an interaction. Breaking an interaction creates space for you to start to move in other kinds of directions. The value of coalitions, again, not mobbing, mm -hmm. but if other people see stuff happening, talk to them about it. I've seen this in meetings where somebody will be doing something and you see the other ones and they start looking at each other. So, and that says, I see something, do you see something? And so in that eye contact or in that nod, we can say to each other, yeah, we do see something. I've been, been in a situation where after a meeting, a number of us spoke about it and said, okay, we can't let that happen again. What do we want to do? And so we came up with a variety of different strategies. One was that one of us sat on one side of the person, the other sat on the other side of the person who was the actor. And when they moved to do certain things, we would draw their attention away or we would redirect, you know, do a good summary, move it off to something else. Um, so there are lots of different ways that we can do it. You can buffer people, you can protect them, and you can engage on their behalf. But the, the key, Leah, is to know your own risk, to know what your sources of influences are. Like I said before, I'm a full professor who's tenured. So on some level, I probably have more legitimacy from others to do certain things than perhaps somebody who is not or a staff member who is not. So I, I could leverage that. I could use that capital to, to work to help somebody. And another thing we can do is if we can't do it, bring somebody else in. I can go to my chair and I can say, I was present. I saw this happening. What are we going to do about it? So those are some of my thoughts. Those are great strategies. I wish we had more time. I know. <laughs> but once again, Laura Lee, I just very much thank you for joining us today to discuss this critical issue, uh, not just in higher education, but of course, across our country with organizations mm -hmm. trying to deal with workplace bullying. And I certainly want to thank the wonderful people at Rutgers University, my alma mater, I have to say that, for hosting <laughs> this podcast and I'm very appreciative of the time everybody has taken out today. So thank you again, Dr. Keishi. Well, thanks, Leah. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Hollis. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>